Thank you very much. So we now are going from um, logic to physics, which is another way of, um, of illuminating, so to speak, the, the problem of the Madhyamaka from a Western standpoint. Um, and, um, you know, I, I called my talk quantum mechanics and deep interrelatedness, which means not just interrelatedness in the usual uh, meaning of the, of the word, uh, but uh, interrelatedness, which is itself relative to something else. And therefore, we'll go to what it is relative to. Um, you know, my inquiry in this domain started uh, with a question that was raised by uh, Mathieu Ricard. We were traveling together and he asked me, but Michel, from the, f from the standpoint of modern physics and philosophy, how can you explain these strange type of relations that are considered, especially in Madhyamaka, in which the relata are not defined uh, previous or independent to uh, the relations? And I, of course, I, I reflected a little bit and I thought, oh, but we have a splendid example in quantum mechanics, so I should develop it. And I wrote a book about it, but now I will present a few elements of this reflection. So the first thing is to understand the concept of quantum entanglement, um, which can be understood as co-relativity of properties in any two-particle system. So when you prepare a certain two-particle system in a certain way, uh, you have the possibility to define a relational property of the couple of particles, but not individual properties of the particles. Let's take an example. Let's take the example of, very, a very simple example actually, of particles having uh, spin one-half. And you can, of course, uh, measure, or you can also define uh, the, the, the properties which uh, concern the projection of this spin along a certain axis. Let's, let's say that it's the Z axis, so this axis. Um, the fact is that in this kind of joint preparation of the system of two particles, you can define the correlation between the two uh, spins that are the two, two uh, Z components of the spin that are defined on each one of the two particles. You can define the correlation of it. For instance, you can say uh, one, if one is up, the other is down. If one is down, the other is up. But you cannot say which one is up and which one is down. And, that, and moreover, there is no sense in which you can say properly that one is up and the other is down. Because if you say that, if you say that the values of the projection of these spins are already determined, but just unknown by us, then you, uh, you land into predictions that are not adequate to what quantum mechanics itself predicts, and, and uh, they are not adequate either to what uh, experiments uh, show are, is the case. Um, because there are, when, when you just say that you ignore which particle is up and which particle is down, 
you have predictions that completely cancel what is called the interference pattern of quantum mechanics. Therefore, you have a case in which you can define the relation between the two properties without being able to define each property taken separately. So you can say the property Z component of spin has no existence of its own, only relative to the other particle. Uh, one very um, well-known uh, interpreter of quantum mechanics, David Mermin, said, well, translated this, uh, this um, fact into a proposition which is disputable, but which is interesting also. Correlations, he said, have physical reality. That which they correlate does not. So certainly my, my focus will be on assessing the first part of the proposition. Is it the case that correlations have physical reality? Uh, are, they defined, the, are these correlations defined intrinsically, even though the properties are not? This will be a question for us, but at the moment uh, I will keep that uh, quiet. The second point now. Let's suppose that we have these two particles. These two particles have some properties, not only the Z component of spins, but also position, for instance, velocity, and so on and so on. How can we define the identity of these particles? We can define the identity of these particles only if we have some characteristics that distinguish one particle from another. For instance, uh, it can be the case that the position of one particle is different from, an, another, from the, the position of the other particle. But let's suppose we have none of these characteristics that distinguish one particle from another. Let's suppose, for instance, that the distribution, the special distribution um, of one particle is exactly the same as the special distribution as the of the other one. Let's suppose that the probability distribution of velocity is exactly the same as the probability distribution of the velocity of the other one. Uh, so we have no way to distinguish the two particles. Absolutely no. There is no property that distinguishes one particle from another. Is, can we say, nevertheless, then, that they are two particles, that they, that they have a distinct identity in spite of this lack of individual properties distinguishing one from the other? There is a way, actually. There is a way, and it's called uh, the co-relativity of identity. If you can say that, for instance, the Z component of the spin of one particle is opposite to the other uh, Z component of the other particle, then you can say that even though they don't have an individualizing characteristic of, or property, they, are, they have a distinguishing mode of being which is contained in this, um, you know, in, in, in this relation they have, namely one being opposite to the other, one spin being opposite to the other, even though you don't know which one is, is up and which one is down. Not only you don't know, but it doesn't even have 
a proper meaning to say that one is up and one is down. So there is correlativity of identity, and therefore, uh, according to Quine's slogan, there is also correlativity of entities. There are two entities because you, you could say one is distinguished from the other by way of this um, correlative uh, property they have, namely being, having sorry, opposite values of spin. Well, okay, now the problem is that this famous quantum entanglement, namely this, you know, this fact that if you observe the Z component of the spin of one particle, you obtain a certain value, and then if you observe the Z component of the other particle, you obtain the opposite value. So this is a fact, an experimental fact. Each one you observe one, you get the opposite value uh, of the other one, with respect to the other one. So, you, since you cannot say that these particles had the values of the Z components they are observed to have before your observation, then you are bound to say that there, maybe there has been an influence between the measurement of one and the measurement of the second one. Um, um, when the one, the first one was measured, suddenly you obtained up, and immediately after, you can observe the second one and find that it's it's down. Therefore, maybe there has been a sort of very quick influence between one and two. So may some uh, researchers uh, at uh, the University of Geneva, um, uh, uh, Gisin and Suarez, um, tested the hypothesis according to which there has been a causal influence of one of the measurements on the other one, even though this influence can be very quick, even quicker than uh, light. Uh, and they did the experiments, and the answer is absolutely and clearly no. There is no way to explain this correlation by way of a causal influence, even if this causal influence goes as quick as you wish, um, much above the velocity of light. So you have a correlativity which is not underpinned by standard productive causality. Now, what about Madhyamaka? Strangely, or I don't know, maybe it's a coincidence, but uh, I think the configuration is quite close. First thing, of course, I, I will not uh, say much about that because here I have a, a, you know, an assembly of specialists. I was intending that for maybe a sort of um, public conference, not for you. But at any rate, in Chandrakirti, it's very interesting that you find an equivalence between many terms, such as pratitya samutpada, idam pratyaya matra, paratantra, paraparasiddha. For instance, paraparasiddha means established by one another. And therefore, it's tempting to think that the famous interdependence or dependent arising, co-arising, um, can be taken to mean that there is certainly not own being, which is the normal negation you do, 
but maybe something like interbeing. And I think this is a very popular interpretation of the Madhyamaka claim. Even though, here again, I'm sure you have, all of you have an idea about that. So I will not uh, stick on, on that interpretation, to be sure, but just to mention that it's one of the possible interpretations that has been made of this system of equivalences between terms. But more interestingly, um, you know, according to the Nagarjuna, as you know, uh, the criticism of own being implies a criticism of the concept, standard concept of productive causality, just because when there is no question of own being, when there is no question of uh, intrinsic existence, then uh, it doesn't make sense to think that uh, this thing is a productive cause of this other thing, because this thing is itself relative to something else, or maybe relative to the very thing that which is said to be its production. So it's, it's a problem, and I think this is uh, an interesting analogy which uh, we can make with the quantum situation in which you had a correlative um, a, corre a, a, a correlation, a very strong correlation, which is not underpinned by anything like productive causality. Now, of course, in both disciplines, both um, physics and, and Madhyamaka Buddhism, the temptation is to reify again. During my, my expositions, I alluded to possible reifications of the correlations. In physics, it's very clear, uh, many interpreters of quantum mechanics concluded from the widespread entanglement that is observed in the quantum world that the world is an inseparable whole, and therefore they, um, they upheld a version of realism called holism, you know, holistic realism, I would say. Another variety of reification, and therefore another variety of realism, is structuralism, namely um, structuralist, structural realism. So, um, for instance, uh, many people here quoted uh, James Ladyman, who claims that reality is pure structure. There is nothing more and nothing else to reality than the structures that are, that are uncovered by the laws of physics but certainly not the terms that are united by the structures. Th uh, there is no entity realism here, but structural realism. Or you can have, in the special case of quantum mechanics, this assertion by David Mermin, according to which correlations have physical reality, even though the correlates have not, do, do not have, sorry. Um, in Buddhism, of course, you certainly know more than I do, that um, there is also a temptation to reify, maybe not by the best authors of the Madhyamaka, but some readers of the Madhyamaka, in which, who would say that the ultimate nature of reality is emptiness, or that the world is a meshwork of dependently arising phenomena. So this is... Um, two modes of reification. But now, the very interesting thing is that in physics, there is a theorem that has been proved in 1999 that shows 
that, that um, relational realism fares no better than property realism. Adam Cabello showed that uh, relational local elements of realities yield consequences that are contrary to quantum predictions just as much as intrinsic local elements of reality. Maybe I should explain that a little bit more. You know that there is a theorem, very well-known theorem, called Bell's theorem that says that um, you cannot have both Local sorry, locality and realism, if you have both locality and realism, you don't, uh, you don't get quantum predictions. And since quantum predictions are well corroborated by experiments, therefore, uh, this couple of assumptions, locality and reality of properties, cannot be upheld simultaneously. Now, Adam Cabello showed exactly the same, but so for relations. Let's suppose that you have both the assumption of locality and reality of relations in a certain um, sphere of space. Not, not necessarily a point of space, but at least a region of space. Then you, um, you, you obtain consequences that are contrary to quantum predictions once again, and these quantum predictions once again have been corroborated. Michelle, so relations between what? Re relations between what? Uh, this kind of um, uh, relations uh, which I alluded to, which are typical of entanglement between two, uh, two particles. Yes. So let's suppose you have a couple of particles uh, in a certain region of space, and you say, this is real. The relation between the two is real. Then, and you, ask, and you add to that, that um, uh, this uh, relation, which is um, observed in a certain region of space, cannot influence another relation, which is observed in another region of space. Then you, you obtain uh, consequences that are just as, m as much contrary to quantum predictions as in the original Bell theorem. So, so these the are also violations of the Bell inequalities? Exactly. Okay. exactly. And the relationship might be entanglement. So yes. you've got a relationship between entanglement here and entanglement there. Exactly, exactly. So uh, uh, there is a very clever dispositive that, uh, that um, Adam Cabello used to, to demonstrate the theorem by um, you know, considering not only entanglement between this and th that, but also crossed entanglement. Mm -hmm. And he showed that, th th that th th this crossed entanglement had also consequences that cannot be reproduced by this hidden variable theory of relations, just as little as the hidden uh, uh, variable theories of properties. So it's interesting. So even relations are relative. The, the conclusion that you draw is that Relations are not intrinsic. Oh, okay, uh, let me put things a little bit more carefully. You know that the two assumptions are locality and realism about relations. So if you don't accept locality, then you have to, um, you have to um, abandon the hypothesis of realism of relations and therefore say, that um, relations are not intrinsically real, 
the relations are themselves relative to something else. To what? Okay, uh, this can also be discussed. Maybe it, it's to another type of entanglement. But here, the infinite regress has to stop somewhere. I, I, I pretend, because I'm a very anti-realist uh, uh, philosopher, that the, the final step of this infinite regress chain is just the present um, act of um, cogni cognition. It's not, it's not an absolute end, of course. We'll discuss uh, that later, and I think... <laughs> yes, we'll discuss about that. It's interesting, but... Okay, and I will develop it um, on another topic. So, um, okay, here again you have also an equivalent in Madhyamaka, as you know. Um, I quoted the famous uh, quote by Sarah and also all the quotes by Nagarjuna in which you can say that um, Parabhava is just as much relative to Spabhava than the other way around. And therefore, there is no such thing as absolute Parabhava, not any more than absolute Svabhava. So here again, there is a certainly a very strong parallel between the two situations. Now, let me do a case study now, a more, even more precise case study about the famous measurement problem of quantum mechanics, also called after the, the you know, Schrodinger's cat paradox. And you know that in this, in this cat paradox, consciousness has been claimed to, to play a very important role. So let me examine this, uh, this option, this uh, claim. You will see that I'm not quite negative about this claim, actually. So let's consider the famous uh, Katz paradox, which is illustrated here. First of all, you know that the uh, fundamental principle of quantum mechanics is the principle of superposition, which has been described by uh, Paul Dirac as follows. It, namely, for instance, an electron, will have properties that are in some vague way intermediate between those of the two original states. And superposition is, you know, when you cannot say that the electron has either up uh, z-componental spin or down z-componental spin. It has a superposition of both with probabilities, probability weight. Um, now, of course, this principle of superposition was widely accepted, but uh, a few years after, suddenly, Schrodinger, as you know, uh, formulated a paradox. He said, according to quantum mechanics, this superposition propagates everywhere as soon as, as, at, as, soon as it has been supposed somewhere. For instance, if it has been posited for electrons, then it should propagate along the measurement chain to a very macroscopic object, including to a cat. For instance, well, maybe I don't know if I have to rehearse the cat's paradox. He says yes. Okay, okay, wonderful. So it's, the problem is about the application of the, uh, of the proposition pr principle to the cat. Uh, and the paradox expresses essentially by two sentences that I carefully 
uh, you know, um, coins in order to pinpoint the delicate uh, element of, of the paradox. So sentence one, after Schrodinger's preparation, the system atom, for instance, a radioactive atom in this case, plus cat, is in a state of superposition, alive plus dead. So it's the whole system that, that is in this uh, state of superposition, not the cat taken in isolation. According to sentence two, when one opens the door of the laboratory, one finds that the cat is either in the state alive or in the state dead. And there is a contradiction, apparent contradiction, between the claim of quantum mechanics, which is a superposition, and the claim of the observer, which is either one or the other. Um, probably the delicate word is state. You know that this word state has not been adopted immediately in the history of quantum mechanics. It has been proposed by Dirac and very much um, challenged by people like Pauli and Schrodinger, especially in the 30s. So it was not obvious that this little uh, symbol, psi, had to be called the state of something, as if this state belonged to this something. For instance, it belonged to the electron, it belonged to the cat, and so on and so on, as a new kind of property of these things. So let me inquire a little bit more about this point. Now, first of all, if we want to uh, solve the cat, or dissolve maybe, as I will propose, the cat's paradox, we have to recapitulate the presuppositions uh, of these two sentences that have, uh, I have written below. The first presupposition is that quantum mechanics describes the intrinsic state of physical systems, that, that this psi is the state of the cat or the state of the electron, as if it were an intrinsic property. This is called the hypothesis of scientific realism. So this is the first presupposition. Second presupposition, the state of every physical system, including cats, is governed by quantum mechanics. This is also one of the assumptions that have been challenged, as you know, during the history of quantum mechanics. This is called the assumption of universality of quantum mechanics, that quantum mechanics can rule everything in the universe. Third assumption is that there is nothing else than physical systems in the universe. Namely, that the superposition is not broken by something that is foreign to the physical realm. And this is called the hypothesis of physicalism. So, if these are the three assumptions that are chosen and that underpin the, the apparent contradiction which, uh, in which um, the, the measurement problem consists, then in order to solve or dissolve the, the measurement problem, you have to reject one at least of the three assumptions. Let's suppose that I reject assumption one. Actually, it's probably the less popular solution, but to me it's the right solution, but let's come to that later. Reject assumption one. 
Okay, if you say that quantum mechanics doesn't describe the intrinsic state of the physical system, if you reject scientific realism, then the problem doesn't even arise. Because here you, can, you do not say that the state of the system atom plus cat is uh, a superposition or that it is determined as being alive or um, dead, but you, you say relative to a certain state of knowledge of the observer, for instance, the state of the cat will be a superposition and relative to another state of knowledge of the observer, the state of the cat will be either alive or dead. So there is no fa fact of the matter as which one of the two states is the right, uh, the right uh, state of the cat. It's, it, there is no absolute state of the cat, there is a relative state of the cat. I can give you a very good, afterwards, during the discussion, I will give you a very good proof that this is indeed um, acceptable and even quite, um, quite uh, appealing as a solution. The second possibility, nevertheless, if, if you don't accept that you, you reject scientific realism, then you can challenge the universality of quantum mechanics and say there are physical systems that are not ruled by quantum mechanics. You know that Bohr said that. He said there are systems that should be excluded from a quantum description, that, are, that should be described classically, and therefore they have well-determined uh, um, uh, properties. For instance, pointers have well-determined properties, or cats have well-determined properties. If it's the case, then no measurement problem. Third possibility, uh, there are things that are not physical, not physical, not, uh, not only non-quantum, but not physical, not even classical, that break the superposition. And, for instance, you would say uh, consciousness breaks the superposition. So this is, the, this is the, the thing that I will examine now. Just not, not to endorse that, as you, and, uh, and as you saw, I do not tend to endorse this pro proposal, but it's just uh, as an exercise to, to understand why some people, very serious people, advocated this solution. So let's try to reject physicalism and let's accept that some thing is non-physical, for instance, mind, consciousness, the self, and so on and so on. Uh, an entire list of very good physicists proposed this idea. For instance, uh, von Neumann, in, in his famous foundation, Mathematical Foundations of Quantum Mechanics, said the abstract self of the observer breaks the superposition. Or Schrödinger said in 35 that it's a mental act of uh, the observer that breaks the superposition, even though there was a little irony in Schrödinger's proposal, because he was a little bit more alluding to others' position than to his. Uh, London Bauer are very celebrated for having said that. They, they claimed that, it's, uh, that the measurement problem can be, um, can be solved by a kind of solipsism, and namely by, uh, by the power of our own introspective power. Because we, when we introspect, we discover that we believe only one thing, either dead or, or alive, not both. 
Okay. This is, I'm sure you, you hate this solution. <laughs> I, I, also, I, I also disagree. And, <laughs> and Wigner, Wigner all, he's certainly the most uh, celebrated of all by having said that not only one consciousness, namely mine, but every kind of consciousness can break the superposition. But what about Cat's consciousness? He never really uh, <laughs> inquired about that. It was essentially about human beings. Okay, now, so as you see, so um, many people uh, claim that consciousness can reduce the state vector, uh, the state vector, namely break the superposition of states. But other researchers did exactly the other way around. As you know, Penrose and Hamroff proposed that state vector reduction has an ontological role to play in quantum mechanics, and that this is exactly th the point which explains the emergence of an act of consciousness. When state, the state vector of, say, you know, the wave that, um, that propagates across the microtubules of the neurons collapses, then an act of consciousness arises according to them. So there are two, two uh, um, types of relation between consciousness and state vector reduction. One which is consciousness causes state vector reduction and the other one which is state vector reduction causes consciousness. Well, I, I could discuss that at length also but let me say that I'm not convinced either by this second solution. Okay, now, in order, just as, once again as an exercise, let's consider the other, another solution that has been proposed, which tries to reconcile all the assumptions I've listed, namely accepting that quantum mechanics is universal, even accepting that the state of um, the cat is intrinsic, and yet being able to sort out the measurement problem. How is it done? By the many worlds um, metaphor. Namely, you know, that according to that, the cat is living in one world, world one, and the cat is dead in the second world. This is a, a possible uh, view, which, is, which reconciles all the three postulates. Um, now, the problem is that this, this, um, this um, interpretation is full of difficulties and paradoxes, including one. Why is it that the, the state vector of the cat decomposes precisely along this basis of either dead or alive? Maybe there are many other bases that can be chosen including um, the superposition of dead plus alive and dead minus alive. Why this one? So it's not clear. Uh, so the only possibility you have is either accept that it's relative to a predetermined experimental basis, which, which means that the observer is back again, against the will of these, the people who proposed this interpretation, or you can accept that there are Privileged decompositions. People have looked for privileged decomposition. They, they found some for two-state um, um, superpositions, but not for more than two states. So there are problems. 
Therefore, you can revert to another interpretation, which is close to this one, and it, which is pr pr probably the original one proposed by Everett himself in 1957. This proposal is not that there are worlds in which cats are alive and cats or cats are dead, but just that each state of the cat is relative to a corresponding state of the observer. First proposal. Second proposal, that nevertheless there is no view from nowhere allowing us to survey this ultimate relativity. Namely, there is no uh, standpoint, God's eye standpoint, from which you can see yourself as observing dead and yourself as observing alive. Therefore, you can only say this cat is relative, this cat is alive relative to my present state. Full stop. It's not alive in absolute, it's alive relative to my present state. This is a proposal by, uh, which is one of the possible readings of Everett's interpretation. Now, let me think a little bit more philosophically. What does this mean? That means that there are, in fact, two ways to break the quantum superposition. One which is naturalist, and the other one, which is transcendentalist. The first one is to say there is a thing in nature which is foreign to phys the physical world, which is called consciousness. And suddenly it arrives like a little cloud and collapses the wave function. The second way of, of breaking the superposition was illustrated by Everett's interpretation without God's eye point of view. And this, this can be called a transcendental way to uh, break the superposition. Why? Because the superposition is not broken in the absolute by a thing of nature, a, a non-physical thing of nature, but it is broken relative to the act of knowing, to the act of seeing, the act of seeing which is not seen itself. Okay? So it's a possibility. Uh, it's a possibility and certainly it's an interesting possibility once again because, in because here again we can draw an analogy with certain reflections that have been made in India. First of all, of course, in the Upanishad and then, but with a critical tone, in Madhyamaka. Uh, probably the first uh, mention ever in the history of human thought of the concept of transcendental subjects had been made in the Brihad Aranaka Upanishad. If you know of an earlier mention, I would be delighted because I'm, you know, I'm attached to the Hunsal archive, so I'm very interested in the history of transcendental uh, philosophies. So in the Brihad Aranaka Upanishad, you have this very, very sharp statement about the Brahman. The Brahman is never seen, but is a seer. It is never heard, but it's a hearer. It's never thought, but it's a thinker. It's never known, but it's a knower. So relative to that, many things can happen, including selection of a certain value of an observable. Now, of course, according to Madhyamaka and Nagarjuna, things are much more intricate. They are not so simple as in the Upanishads. Uh, Nagarjuna apparently alluded to that in, um, in Mula Madhyamaka Karika 9, 1, 
For whomsoever, he said, there exists seeing, hearing, and feeling, he exists prior to this. So, but he said, so do some declare. That means that he is not declaring that, apparently. Here again, I know that you are more specialist than I am. Um, and so he is uh, alluding to people who believe in the pre-existence of a, a transcendental subject prior to what uh, is known by this subject. But he is dismissing that. And then he declares something quite different. It, it, I, I would say it, what he declares is the co-emergence of the knower and the known. Well, maybe it's a simplification, but I take this sentence to, to say virtually this. Whatever existence is de determined as prior to seeing, hearing, etc., and also feeling, by what means is he made known? There is no way to know the knower. And therefore, there is no way to, to distinguish the knower from the act of knowledge at the moment. So maybe it's also one of the possibilities we have to solve or dissolve the cat's paradox. Import this critical view of the transcendental subject, this non-transcendental transcendental subject inside the, the, the paradox I've uh, explained and say that, uh, you know, the cat is either alive or dead relative not to a transcendental subject, but just to the present act of knowing, in which co-emerge the state of the cat and the state of the knower, which is observing the cat. Thank you.